You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Hey, good afternoon. This is Chris Costa, the Executive Director at the International Spy Museum. Today, we are joined by Sam Fattis. Sam is a retired CIA operations officer, a case officer published author and national security commentator. In addition to writing, speaking, and teaching, he consults for the U.S. military, U.S. government, and private industry. Sam graduated from the Johns Hopkins University and the University of Maryland Law School. We're going to discuss Sam's latest book, The CIA War in Kurdistan. Sam, welcome uh, to our podcast today, our spycast. Although we're doing it virtually, I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it as well. So, Sam, again, uh, really looking forward to this conversation. And full disclosure, I just want to tell our listeners that I really, really enjoyed the book. And uh, maybe I'll talk about why as, as we run through it. But I'd really like, like you to talk about your book, uh, The CIA War in Kurdistan, and provide some color for our audience. I think it's fascinating. Uh, in some ways, it links strategic to tactical, but I love your discussions of leadership, of tradecraft, and of course, as you and I chatted about the other day, I have experience working with Kurds in northern Iraq, and uh, of late, I was very much involved with some policy decisions for the Syrian Kurds, and that's really how I want to kick it off. Although your book focuses on northern Iraq and and uh, not Syrian Kurds, but if you could just offer some perspectives. Again, we're both out of government, but what are your thoughts on the Syrian Kurds and our relationship kind of writ large with Kurdish population? Well, I think what's important for us to remember is that if you're talking about the Kurds and Kurdistan, you're not talking about northern Iraq, although that's obviously the focus of this book. You're talking about a region that encompasses northern Syria, northern Iraq, I don't know, at least a third of Turkey, big chunks of Iran. You're talking about a huge population of people who have been some of our most reliable allies for a long time. 
and who yet are are really on uh, on the receiving end of a tremendous amount of oppression and brutality. So uh, we owe these we owe these folks, and this is overall a big a, a mammoth unresolved issue in our foreign policy is is how we do the right thing by the Kurds in general. Fair enough. And you open your book by giving a brief synopsis of the Kurds' interaction with Saddam. Could you just talk a little bit about that before we dive in? Right. Well, I thought it was important with the book because so much time has passed since the invasion to just take us back to that point in time and put everything in context. And when it comes to the Kurds and Saddam, they had been brutalized for decades. And when I say brutalized, I'm talking literally hundreds of thousands of Kurds killed in the most horrific ways imaginable. Entire towns like Halabcha killed with chemical weapons. Um, in the case of the Barzani clan, at some points during the Anfal campaign, every male 12 and older rounded up, shot and bulldozed into mass graves. Uh, so, you know, that's the backdrop against which we went into Kurdistan, into northern Iraq, in preparation for this invasion was really to end the reign of this monster who had done so much damage to these people. Now, that's a fair point. And I didn't ask you this the other day. There, there actually is a memory museum in northern Iraq in Sulaymaniyya. Have you been to that museum, which chronicles some of the torture perpetrated by Saddam and his security services on the Kurdish population? Have you ever been there? Have you been back to northern Iraq? I have, I have not. I've had a lot of contact with Kurds since the war, uh, but I have not been back to Kurdistan, although we've got some discussion now about potentially going back and doing a documentary. Uh, good luck with that. Hopefully we can uh, maybe stay tied together on that. It would be interesting to uh, be connected on any work done uh, with, with kind of uh, a pathway back to northern Iraq to see where things are today. So let's Let's flash forward a bit or to uh, to actually flash back to 9-11. So where were you during 9-11? You somehow thought you would end up back in, in northern Iraq. You've got a lot of experience with Turks and in the Arab-speaking world as well. So take us back a little bit. Where were you when 9-11 happened, and how did you figure you would end up in northern Iraq? Well, so I rotated back to headquarters from an overseas assignment the summer of 01. So now I'm back at a desk in headquarters, which I think for any true case officer is probably second only to a sentence of death. So I'm riding a desk back at headquarters. 9-11 happens. Uh, I got buddies that are choppering into Afghanistan. We're going to war everywhere. I'm still supposed to be... Uh, focused on shuffling paper on my desk. And then I begin to hear rumors uh, within the building, within the director of operations, that the decision has been made. We're going to invade Iraq and we're getting ready to stand up teams to go into northern Iraq to prep the battlefield. And uh, I mean, I literally went upstairs to where the Iraqi ops group was and sat down with my buddy who was chief of ops and effectively demanded the job as the guy who would lead that team. Uh, I had, as you just suggested, a lot of experience with the Turks and a lot of experience generally in Kurdistan already. 
most of which we still can't talk about. But I spoke Turkish. I knew the Turks. I knew the Kurds. I had worked the area. And as I told him, I said, you're not going to find somebody more qualified. And more importantly, I'm not leaving your office until you tell me I got the job. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I was named, I was named to, to run that team, which, which didn't exist. But anyway, that's another subject. Right. We're going to talk a little bit about that. So you also knew that the Turks can be a bit prickly, right? So you knew that that's probably an understatement. So you already understood that you were going to have to navigate dealing with the Turkish general staff or somebody was, but it certainly would have impacted on you. So you knew that going in, right? I did know that. Uh, and despite that, I, dem <laughs> I demanded the job. But, you know, I mean, I had I worked with the Turks and many of them are very great guys and remain lifelong friends. But it is an often extremely contentious relationship. And when we got to the point after I'd been given the job where I asked, so what's the plan for this invasion? And the plan was effectively, we're going in the north, we're bringing in all these troops, and we're going to arm the Kurds to the teeth so they can fight the Iraqis. And as soon as I heard that portion of the plan, basically I said, well, that's great. What do the Turks think about that? Like right. you're, going to give, you're going to give Javelin anti-tank missiles to the Kurds. Uh, the Turks probably have a strong opinion on that. And the answer was, we, haven't, we don't know, we haven't talked to the Turks about it yet, but we don't think it'll be a problem. And at that point, all I thought was, wow, then you don't actually know anything about the Turks, but okay, <laughs> we'll figure this out as we go forward. And certainly you chronicle that in your book. So I just want to touch on one other uh, point before we move on. So you also had, not only have you worked with the Turks, and maybe I misspoke earlier, I thought you also operated elsewhere in the Middle East, but uh, you also had a great deal of experience working counterterrorism. And prior to 9-11, you and I both know uh, there was not a, you know, a big stable of people that were working CT. It certainly was a relatively small community, but you also worked on weapons of mass destruction, you know, and probably counterproliferation. So you had that as part of your, your resume, so to speak. Um, so you had all of all of the kind of the right bona fides to work in Northern Iraq. Is that true? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I had in fact worked a number of other places in the Middle East and had a lot of experience working Iraqi operations. And okay. my last job before I came back to headquarters in the summer of 01, my primary focus was weapons of mass destruction. So that was, had very much become one of my specialties uh, by default, I guess. Well, so, you were tapped to lead the team because of your persistence that was to spearhead the invasion into Iraq. And uh, the plan started being formulated. You knew that you were going to deal with, I think, the KDP, the PUK, Barzani, and the Talibani clan. So kind of unpack a little bit and just lay out the concept. Tell us what the, the plan was to the extent that you can. Right. So what we had at that point is north of the Green Line, which was the dividing line between Kurdish-controlled territory and Iraq proper. North of that line, we had what amounted to an autonomous Kurdish region divided up basically into two almost separate nation states, two separate kingdoms, maybe one under the control of uh, the Kurdistan Democratic Party, KDP, which 
really dominated by the Barzanis, as you indicated, and then the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan in the southeast of the area, really dominated by the Talibani clan. And our job was to go in as a team, lash up with both of them, and begin to prepare the battle space for follow-on special forces, and then um, and then ultimately, theoretically, the 4th Infantry Division, which never made it. So that we were the the very tip of that spear. So we would establish the relations with the Kurds or expand them. We already had the relations. We would collect boatloads of intelligence. We would develop the relations with the Peshmerga, et cetera, and so forth. Everything that needed to be done to prepare the way for the broader U.S. effort. That was the the plan as as it as it turned out, when we finally made it in in the summer of '02, we got thrown a little bit of a curveball because at that point our first focus became Ansar al-Islam and al-Qaeda and an enclave that was growing in northern Iraq. But the mission from the outset was really tied to the invasion of Iraq. So when did the invasion began to get formulated. When did you start to hear, I mean, you indicated early on that you heard get ready for Iraq. We were collectively, the United States was focused in the military and CIA in Afghanistan. So were you surprised at how quickly you were activated to get into Northern Iraq? No, in fact, I mean, the, the way this, the way this developed, so I'm talking to my friend in the winter of 0102. At that point, the timeline was we should be in Iraq, We, my team, in March. And the invasion is coming within months. Um, in other words, um, so so it wasn't a matter of it being sped up. It was a matter of us actually taking considerably longer to get into country and then this thing taking a lot more time to develop than was originally conceived. We we were thinking, we, we were told we need to be on the ground later than March because the invasion is coming within months. We're going to do this spring, summer of 2002. Gotcha. So... I want to dive a little deeper on you building your team because I thought there were some excellent reflections of of uh, solid leadership. And, of course, you make the point that the CIA is not like the military in terms of coming together and putting together task forces in the way and the scope, the way the military does that. So you had to really uh, build a team. In some cases, that was rather painful, at least it seems so from reading the book. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, the decisions you made with your team, building your team, how you put that together, and uh, and just kind of lay that out for us a little bit. And then we'll talk about Ansar al-Islam a little bit. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm named as team leader, but there is no team. So as you indicated, if I, if I ask the U.S. Army for a mechanized infantry platoon, they can tell me exactly how many guys that is and what pieces of gear they have um, and what exactly what it looks like. CIA doesn't work that way, which makes it incredibly flexible, but obviously also means you've got to build everything from scratch every time. And that's where we were trying to do this in headquarters. So we were pulling together individuals, but also building a structure for this team which initially ended up being eight guys, but then plussed up to 
several dozen. So we weren't building a structure for eight men. We were building a structure for for dozens and then assembling the gear, the equipment. um, And and being at headquarters, you know, makes that a challenge because you're you're standing too close to the flagpole and you got too many people that are reaching into team business to the point of buying gear and sending it to the log center and having it positioned to ship out with no thought of what, what gear we're buying and why. So at every stage of that, basically I ended up, you know, as I discover all of these things that put my arms around the problem, what this means is that I am consistently going back to my bosses at headquarters and telling them, okay, this is not the way it's going to work anymore. If I'm the team leader, everything goes through me, no decisions on any of this without me, et cetera, so forth. Um, that's not all about me. That's just about imposing a structure and getting control and then obviously trying to build some degree of team cohesion. I mean, we're going to go in country, and from the first second we step in country, we're going to be live. There are no training days. There's no rear area. So we have to take all these individuals and turn them into a unit before we end up in country or we're going to have a disaster. Right, and you literally drove in, if, if I recall, from Turkey into northern Iraq, correct? You drove across border and then you went to your sectors that essentially um, you had to connect also with your Kurdish partners. And they had to, to some degree, provide some security. Is that about right? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you could say as a, as a baseline that, you know, our, our capacity to even be in country and to do anything in country on some level is de- dependent on the Kurds. If nothing else, it's dependent upon their permission to us to operate. We ended up operating extensively unilaterally, but yeah. that was obviously with at least the tacit permission of the Kurds. But, yeah, the, the Turks would not let us fly in. So we had to drive from Diyarbakir, Turkey, all the way down ultimately to Kuala Chulan and beyond. So effectively from southeastern Turkey all the way to the Iranian border ultimately. is. Uh, and when we first went in, that's a grand total of eight guys and some vehicles. And that constitutes the entire team and the entire presence. Right. And you had commented in the book that you were in, at some point, you were in Yuksekova. Am I pronouncing the name right? Yuksekova. Yuksekova. <laughs> I lived in a Turkish commando camp for six months, and that's the, the best pronunciation uh, <laughs> I got. So we were pronouncing it wrong. But we lived there during the first Gulf War. Did you base out of there? Did you launch from there? Or did you just drive through that? part of southeast turkey so uh no we didn't base out of there we uh flew into diyarbakir and then drove all the way down through salopi dohuk uh saladin all the way ultimately as i say effectively all the way to by the time we were working on sar we drove all the way to iran almost Mm -hmm. um yuksekova interestingly um later on we put together our sort of own exfil plan for how we would get out if it all went sideways and nobody was coming to, rex- uh, to rescue us. And that constituted our exfil route due north to a Turkish border post right near Yuksekova, actually. Gotcha. 
Um, we'll talk a little bit about that because I really appreciated your in extremis planning, your contingencies, how to conduct high risk meetings. Um, we'll get to that. So talk about Ansar al-Islam. What about that organization? What was your mis mission as it related to that organization? What were the linkages to Al-Qaeda? Talk about that a bit. Right. So in the summer of 02, we were still not in country yet because the Turks were effectively preventing us from getting in. We began to collect information via the Kurds of an enclave right up against the Iranian border. So sort of a chunk carved out of PUK territory where an extremist Islamic group called Ansar al-Islam had set up their own little separate Taliban-like state, and they were now welcoming al-Qaeda members escaping from Afghanistan, crossing Iran, and taking refuge with them. And the Kurdish information suggested this is getting bad, it's growing, there are more and more guys showing up every day, and they are working extensively with chemical and potentially biological weapons. Uh, this is a nightmare getting ready to happen. So our, we went in the summer of 02, finally got in, and that jumped to the top of our priority list. Get down there, find out, uh, are the Kurds being alarmist? Are the Kurds misleading us? What's the story? The short version of that is uh, the Kurds had a lot of guys in custody, members of Ansar and Al-Qaeda, that they had captured. We questioned them extensively, um, turned some of them around, put them back on the street working for us, recruited our own sources from scratch, and very quickly we determined that if anything, the Kurds were playing down the level of the threat, uh, not exaggerating it. We had a real problem, but the good news was uh, they, Ansar didn't even know we were there. We knew everything about them. We were invisible to them. And for once in history, we had an opportunity to get rid of these guys before they even knew what happened. Were there any ties to Saddam between them and Ansar al-Islam? You know, there, there were not, but um, there was a... a there was a an undercurrent, maybe that's the right word, coming from Washington. There was a clear indication from Washington that, look, if you guys can show that Ansar and Al-Qaeda are in bed with Saddam Hussein, that will make the entire job of justifying the invasion that much easier post 9-11. In other words, we we would love to see that intelligence. And I don't mean to suggest headquarters said that to me explicitly. I mean, it was very clear from what was being said in policy circles in D.C. So, uh, you know, at one point, I, at one point, I actually called the team together while we were down working the Ansar problem in the early weeks of this deployment and just laid all of this out for them and said, look, we, we know, here's the bottom line. If we find actual intelligence that says that Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein are in bed together and cooperating, I'll be the happiest guy in the world to press the button and transmit that message back to DC because they're all monsters. Mm -hmm. But none of that changes the way we do business. We are professionals. We collect, we analyze, we report, we just call it like we see it and policy is somebody else's business. And I didn't do that 
because I had any doubts about the guys on my team. I did that because I wanted them to hear it out loud from me to understand what I was saying, which is just do your jobs the same way you always do your jobs, by the numbers, and Washington does what it does policy-wise. That's not in our control. But we will shade nothing. We will twist nothing. We will slant nothing. It's just business as usual, drive on. And that's what we did. And we found, obviously, no such, no such connections. No such connections, and you warned your team, essentially. You, you used the word in the book, I think, pretext. Uh, you were concerned that there was a, that would be the pretext, and you didn't discover that. So you averted politicization. You did your job. Is that fair? That's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. And where does the Kermal facility, where does that factor in? I'm forgetting the chronology um, from from your book, but you talked about a facility that was pretty scary. Can you outline the the concerns with that facility and what it turned out to be? Right. So the, the, look, the compound, if you will, within this Ansar enclave, where the work was being done with chemical weapons and to some extent with biological weapons, was referred to at the time as the Kermal facility, and that's how it is in most of the literature. It is more correctly referred to as the Sargat facility in terms of the actual names of the towns, but it's irrelevant. I mean, these are all tiny little places right up against the Iranian border, so it's not important. They were, in fact, doing a lot of chemical weapons work there. They were working with cyanide-based gas and all kinds of other things. Um, and so this would be late summer 2002, we determined, uh, you know, we determined, okay, this is a real threat, and there are actually a lot of Al-Qaeda guys here. And as I said earlier, we, we had collection to the point with so many sources and such visibility that we had 10-digit grid coordinates for every gun emplacement in that enclave. I literally, no exaggeration, could draw you a floor plan of the floor of every building in these compounds, um, and literally, again, no exaggeration, tell you who slept in which rooms and what their names were, because that's how many sources we had and how many people we had questioned. Um, and we put together a series of plans to Washington, D.C., which effectively all were one version or another of, let's go get rid of these guys right now. Let us strike them and eliminate them before they have the opportunity to spread this contagion. Um, every plan in succession was disapproved by Washington based on concerns that it would somehow or another cause problems for the coming invasion. So uh, we, in, in effect, we had these guys in our sights at the end of the summer of 02, and we let them all walk. That had to be extremely frustrating from your point of view. Yeah, I, I think that's, yes, that's an incredible understatement. I mean, obviously, we, you know, for the guys who were there, you're, you're uh, some of these guys, by the way, who were there with me in the summer of 02 had just come out of Afghanistan and basically almost just changed clothes and turned around and jumped on this team. And we're not even a year from 9-11, and we've got al-Qaeda guys, including some senior figures, in our sights and have the capacity to end this, literally uh, get rid of them before they even realize we are present. 
and we're going to pass on this opportunity. And this included, by the way, I mean, he most of that summer he was in Baghdad getting medical treatment. But one of the key figures in this group is Zarqawi himself, oh. who who we allow to live and then pay the price, you know, for that for years in Iraq with what these guys did subsequently. So as I recall, Zarqawi was in Herat, Afghanistan, and he crossed through Iran to get to Iraq. He did, and there were quite a few Al-Qaeda guys amongst Ansar already in the summer of 2002 who had all taken the same route. They, for one reason or another, had been allowed to transit Iran by the Iranians. Yeah. And, they, and their, their agenda was explicit already. We are here to spread. We're, we're here to continue jihad. We are here to set Iraq on fire. We didn't surmise that. We knew that. We had questioned we had questioned quite a few of them. I should interject here just when I'm talking about interrogating people and and questioning people and so forth. Uh, none of this involved any of the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques. We did this all through, all by the book and the book that I had been taught. You know, we don't lay a hand on people. That doesn't mean we're nice to them. There are a lot of things psychologically you could do to people when you interrogate them, but... Uh, this did not involve waterboarding or any other technique, and we never found anybody that didn't talk. And as I indicated earlier, uh, a number of them we succeeded in turning around and putting back on the street, uh, running against their former comrades. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Yep. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, full disclosure, Sam and I talked about this uh, a couple days ago. I really very much appreciated how you articulated, you know, tactically how you work the interrogation piece. And you just kind of laid that out for us. But I want to go a little deeper. You made the point that you recruited some sources. Um, so talk about the operational risks. And I know we're getting tactical. We're talking about tradecraft, but I think it's important. So you conduct the interrogation of somebody that uh, has obvious links. They're part of an organization, part of a terrorist organization that uh, are 
our clear adversaries, and then they turn into a human source. So there are hazards with that dynamic. And I, I've been involved with some of those dynamics before, probably not to the extent that you guys were on the ground in, uh, in Northern Iraq, but just talk about that. How did you navigate through that from a counterintelligence standpoint? How did you know you could trust these guys once you cut them loose? Um, and did any of them just kind of disappear? Right. Well, so, you know, without getting too far down in the weeds where we can't go, I mean, in essence, the way I would always describe this to a junior officer is, listen, so you've recruited your boy and uh, he's he's your guy now. and You throw him back out there into the wild to go hang out with his Al Qaeda buddies for the next week and then you're going to meet him. Um, think of this like the invasion of the body snatchers. When you're when your guy shows up next week. He may look like he's your guy. You may have been completely right about your assessment of him. Let's assume you were. He was your guy. You don't have any idea who he is now. You don't have any idea what happened during that week. You don't have any idea whether they suspected him, whether he's been tortured, whether they threatened to cut up his firstborn male child in front of him. But I tell you what, if they did turn the screws to him, he did not choose his loyalty to you over his other allegiances. If that's what you think, that you're gonna stay alive just because he's a nice guy and he loves you, that's a good way to get dead. That's, that's not the way this works. So when he comes back next week and you pick him up in a car or you meet him however, you are going to assume the worst that he is on the other side. And this is not just an old school Cold War counterintelligence risk. You might get sent home early uh, this is a you're going to get blown up, you're going to get shot, or you're going to be captured, and you're going to be beheaded risk. So you will structure everything about every contact with every single one of these guys for all the time you run him with that predicate on that foundation. There is no trust. There is no I depend on him to stay alive. So you will control everything about the meeting what he had, where you, where you pick him up, what he knows about where you're going to pick him up, down to the minute detail. And, um, you know, just to, to jump ahead a little bit, I mean, we ended up, we ended up making a lot of meetings with a lot of sources going beyond this with Iraqis where the danger was really the same. Right. And we insisted on the same standards always. And to the point where my deputy and I, would just randomly, when somebody's going out to meet a source in whatever vehicles one night, tell them at the last minute, that's great, I'm coming too. I'm jumping in the support vehicle that's following you. So that every officer, every day, all day knows, there's uh, it, potentially the, the boss is gonna watch every single thing that goes down on the street tonight. So you better be prepared for that level of scrutiny because that's how we're all going to stay alive is by not cutting any corners ever. And as I detail in the book, sometimes we found that things were not exactly the way they should have been. And then we squared it away and the officers in question fixed it and, and moved on. We didn't have any problems. So, Sam, that's exactly where I wanted you to go. And I really appreciate that. So you were really adapting. Uh, this was a high risk environment. 
and you were taking tradecraft and applying it to the environment you were in, in a combat zone, essentially. And that's where you dictated to your guys, and maybe that's not the right word, but you uh, you stressed to them that they needed to have those in extremist plans to include the escape plan that you talked about early on. So is there anything else you want to add about the tradecraft and how you, how you manage the security of your folks um, ensure that they got home safely and they all well yeah i mean fortunately we didn't lose anybody which uh i'm very proud of um look we we took nothing for granted the entire time we were operating in country so you know we're operating out of a compound and we obviously are lashed up with the kurds so to a certain extent we have kurdish security but that's not we're not going to bed thinking okay i'll be fine because the kurds have my back so uh you know, I insisted everybody be armed 24-7, uh, well, 24-7. So that means if you're sitting at your desk typing up your report from your asset meet, you still have your sidearm on your hip. If you're in bed, it's lying right next to you. If you're sleeping on the floor in a sleeping bag, it's right next to you. But it is within arm's reach of you and or on you. But if, if you're not in bed or you're not in the shower, it's on you 24-7. Your long gun your M4 is propped up against the wall next to your computer terminal. Right next to your long gun is a backpack filled with it's your go bag. That is your emergency in extremis gear. That means if I tell you we are leaving this house right now and we are not coming back, you can literally stand up, pick up that backpack and that rifle, walk out the door, climb in a vehicle, and we're gone. And you don't, there's no packing, there's no delay, there's no nothing. Um, and we didn't just dictate that, but we exercised that. So we would literally wake people up at three o'clock in the morning on no notice and tell them um, we're under attack and we're leaving and, you've, and out of here. And then time how long it takes to go through our destruction protocol, obviously, because we can't leave comms gear and classified get in the vehicles and physically roll out of the compound and put a clock on that and if it wasn't fast enough do it do it again um and then as it progressed we would move to simulating chemical attack okay we just received incoming nerve gas mask and now execute our protocol we have and you know we we could go somewhere in the range of 20 minutes from first notice to everybody being out of there, all destruction protocols done. We've cleared the compound and we're headed for another location. And then, and then we added to that an actual second location to go to where we pre-positioned everything so that we could go there, set up comms and continue to march. Even if we were taking, even if we had been hit with chemical weapons at the original location. So I had a lot of questions about leadership because I, I, I think uh, as I read through your book, I, I highlighted a lot of just simple, straightforward leadership lessons that you imparted in your book, uh, conducting clandestine operations, but still uh, leading your people in a combat zone. And really, you just covered a lot of what I wanted to tease out a little bit. I very much appreciate that in a combat zone, you found time. Uh, which happens in special operations and in the military quite regularly, you found time, made time to conduct rehearsals. Uh, did you ever deal with somebody, uh, you know, kind of the, 
maybe the eye rolls or like, hey, we're in a combat zone. Do we have time for this? Or, or did you have, was everybody on board? Because you did talk about some of the the one-on-one -on -one counseling you have to do, which happens, right? But I'm wondering if everybody clearly understood the importance of doing the, those kinds of rehearsals, which aren't usual in, uh, you know, in an embassy environment somewhere else in the world. You know, there are individual times uh, through the deployment, and I detail some of them in the book, when you're dealing with people that are frankly just exhausted. They're working seven days a week, 16, 18 hours a day. There is no backup. There's no rear area. There's a lot of threats. So, yeah, there are times when we have some one-on-one -on -one counseling and discussions, and sometimes those get to the point where it's me just having to uh, to be a little more forceful. Um, but that just goes with the territory. By and large, the team, everybody was there for the right reasons, and but I, I, I and and there weren't there weren't those kind of issues most of the time. But I also say that. I don't, you know, the way I look at this is part of this is also the way you present it. Uh, I'm not asking them to do anything I'm not doing myself. Uh, I'm not waking them, telling them to get up at three o'clock in the morning to do this. I'm up at three o'clock in the morning. In fact, I'm up before them because I obviously know we're getting ready to have the drill. Um, part of going out on the street that I referenced before is to double check people in their tradecraft. Part of it is to say, I'm not asking you to go out there and risk getting blown up, but I'm sitting back here in the rear safe. Um, when we're unloading supplies from a truck, I'm going to get out and stand in the snow with everybody and unload supplies, not because they need my help, but because I'm not sitting inside warm while, while they're outside freezing. That's not the way this works. And when we're all done with these drills, uh, we do, you know, with military, we do a hot wash, a quick after action. We all get together. Okay, fine. We just did this evacuate the drill thing. Get everybody together in the room. Hot wash, lessons learned, what worked, what didn't work. That hot wash begins always with comments about me. So I don't criticize them. We constructively criticize each other. And when there's criticism of where, you know, one of the first times we did that, the first criticism was, uh, Sam, you're running around trying to help each individual guy pack up his stuff, but we need you as the leader to stay in one place where we all know where you are. So as we confront questions that only the leader can make a decision on, we can find you and not waste time. And that was a completely valid criticism. And that was the, that's the way that hot wash starts. So as long as it's presented that way, we're all in this together, I, I think you're, you're fine. You know, if, if it transforms into a leader imposing a standard on other people but that he won't impose on himself, then I think that's a totally different thing. No, I appreciate that. That's uh, a leader showing vulnerabilities, too. That's very human, and that's very important and uh, self-effacing, and I I appreciate that. So thanks. Thanks for sharing some of that. I want to go to another example that you provided in your book, which I thought, you know, kind of harkened back to World War II tactical deception operations. But you uh, understood that Iraqi security services were trying to set set you up, you and some of your your case officers for essentially an ambush kind of talk through an assassination talk through that and how did you 
effectively thwart it? And uh, how did that end up? So the Iraqis uh, started sending guys into northern Iraq. I mean, they already had sources there. But they started sending people deliberately across the line into Kurdish territory, effectively posing as either defectors or maybe they weren't defecting, but they wanted to make contact with us and they wanted to give us information and then perhaps agree to a continuing relationship. And this is what we would call in the trade a dangle, right? These guys, what we knew, some of it because they weren't good at what they did, some of it because by that point we had so many sources that we just were tipped off to what they were doing. But what we knew was that this was a game. These guys were being dangled. They were lying to us. The And the ultimate goal was to try to develop a relationship with us, get us to drop our guard, get us to compromise on our tradecraft, and agree to meet them under circumstances where we could be targeted killed or kidnapped. So we were supposed to get lazy and complacent. So the first few of these guys, we determine and we basically just take off the battlefield. They go into custody. Uh, we, we lead them away after we first, we meet with them and listen to everything they have to say, obviously, and get and get down their MO. And then we go from there to putting them into custody. But after a while, we think, all right, well, that's not that's not fully exploiting this. Let's. How about we turn these guys around and run them back at the Iraqis themselves? And uh, let's just double them and turn them around, which we succeed in doing. And then we expanded from there to thinking, okay, well, if the Iraqis can try to lure us into an ambush, why can't we do the same thing to the Iraqis? So let's, let's find this. By this point, we know the colonel who's basically running Let's put it this way. We know by reputation the Iraqi colonel who's running all these ops. Let's see if we can dangle in front of him the prospect of kidnapping a CIA officer who he can parade around in Baghdad and get him to drop his guard and agree to meet us under circumstances he might not always meet a source. And then, in fact, what we'll do is we'll put hands on him and 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 have captured him. Um, we didn't quite make it that far. We doubled a bunch of them. We captured a bunch of them. We ultimately got to the point of having an asset on the phone, one of his guys that we had doubled on the phone with this colonel, talking to him and trying to coax him into agreeing to come meet near the green line. And uh, the colonel was a professional. The colonel didn't buy it. Colonel. Colonel, Colonel said he was going to be there in effect, and then the colonel never showed up. And we knew that when the phone call was over, we could tell, we could tell exactly what just happened. You know, when I read that, I, I can just imagine that some people would sit back and say, you wasted your time. And I thought, on the contrary, I like the fact that you messed with their intelligence service, and you're not going to hit a home run every time. You took time. You were playing three-dimensional chess. That is the business of this cat and mouse game, with you know, with least lethal uh, consequences potentially. But I, I very much appreciated. Uh, there's a broader narrative in your book, but there are also excellent stories within the story. 
So I like that. So thanks for sharing that. Where are we in the narrative now? So the 173rd, talk about them and 10th group and kind of update where we were in the chronology here. What was your mission at this point in time? And uh, where are we in time and space? Right. Well, so as as we go into the fall and then the winter of 02 and 03, we are doing all the things that we've been talking about. We are running sources. We're expanding our asset stable. I mean, expanding. We had no sources. We went in. By this point, we're running, I don't know, uh, 100, 200 sources. Who knows? Um, we're, build, we're building sabotage teams. We're playing this cat and mouse game with the Iraqis. Uh, we're preparing for the war. We stand up uh, propaganda efforts. We opened a radio station. We're putting people all across the green line every day. We're, we're moving, uh, moving at, at great speed. Um, the Turks are still being completely obstructionist. They don't let the 4th Infantry Division come in. They never let the 4th Infantry Division come in. Ultimately, spring 03, the U.S. government succeeds in getting a relatively small number of U.S. military personnel in. And I should say we had military personnel embedded in our team, but beyond that handful, they finally get the 10th Special Forces Group in, and then they jump in the 173rd Airborne out of Italy, which uh, they're great guys and wonderful people. Um, they jumped in to secure an airfield that had that was in Kurdish territory that had been in Kurdish hands for 25 years and where we had been for a year, but they still executed a combat jump to seize that airfield. Um, I guess so they could say they did it. Anyway, um, I'm sure the guys jumping out of the planes didn't make that decision. They just did what they were told. Yeah. So now we are spring of 03. We have 10th group on the ground. We have 173rd. Unfortunately, as I put in the book, you know, we spent all this time waiting for the military to show up. When the military did show up, it caused a lot of issues. The lash up in our sector was not good. Um, we had a lot of issues with Donald Rumsfeld's policies, and cooperation was problematic. Mm -hmm. Well, and at the same time, despite all of that, and you laid that out very nicely in your book, but despite all that, you did exactly what you were tasked to do. You prepared the environment, and that's probably operational preparation of the environment. That term is probably overused, but that's in essence what you did, right? You had all kinds of intelligence that we didn't have prior to the kickoff of the invasion. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we ultimately execute, uh, achieved every objective that the, that they gave us in that regard. And I should say that the, the working level cooperation with 10th group guys and with the 173rd individuals was excellent as you would expect. I mean, we all know when you go down range and you're actually in the field, all of this tribal bureaucratic nonsense in Washington typically goes away and everybody really is one team won't fight. Unfortunately at the command level, we just, we just, we had, we had issues and some of that was just dictated from Washington. So, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, uh, maybe I'm jumping ahead in regard to the uh, the tender of surrender. Uh, I don't know if you want to go there yet, but that, you know, that's the most notable example of when Washington's interference really ends, makes, makes us squander an opportunity. 
No, that's exactly where I am in my chronology of kind of the narrative. You were getting ready or, or you were positioned to accept surrenders from large numbers of Iraqis early on in the conflict, if not before. I, I forget if you could just tell that story, because that really that really is a great example of what you're saying. Well, we had we had made a major focus of our recruitment of sources, not just simply the acquisition of intelligence, which is obviously crucial, but attempting to influence, uh, you know, essentially covert action. I mean, essentially influencing their actions, and the the ultimate objective ideally would have been that they that these senior Iraqi commanders would have gotten rid of Saddam, and we wouldn't have had to invade at all. That proved to be a bridge too far, I think probably because we had simply rattled our saber too many times in the past at Saddam and walked away. So ultimately, every conversation with a senior Iraqi general ended up with, when I see your tanks rolling in, um, I'll believe it. But until then, if you're asking me to jump first and trust that you're actually going to follow through, I'm not doing that. But in any event, the invasion, the invasion starts, the troops are coming in from the south, the air war has begun, and my deputy uh, is, is now in charge. I've, I pushed him forward as, and put him in charge of a forward deployed team, so like a portion of our guys that are right up on the front lines. And he's working very closely with, with the Kurdish Peshmerga and one of their senior commanders out of Dohuk. So they broker a meeting with a number of very senior Iraqi leaders, including the commander of the entire corps facing us, the governor of Nineveh province, basically every senior Iraqi in the entire region surrounding Mosul, including the commanders of probably half the troops in the north, come to this meeting and effectively say, we surrender we're done and we will go to work for you now. Uh, so it wasn't they indicated they would talk about it. They effectively tendered their surrender. We were, prohibit, we were prohibited by the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, as CIA officers from accepting the surrender of any Iraqis. So in essence, despite the fact that there was the equivalent of a lieutenant general in the Kurdish Peshmerga present at the meeting, in fact, their most senior commander was there, uh, that, form, that surrender could not be considered formal. So we had to set up a second meeting to bring in a battalion commander from 10th group because he could accept the surrender. And he so was so offensive to the Iraqis and so arrogant with the Iraqis and treated them so poorly that the meeting, this second meeting broke up and they all stormed out of the room um, and effectively walked away from, from that surrender. And literally that afternoon, the same battalion commander ordered his troops into Mosul, and we just sort of squandered that, which is which would not only have been the surrender of all of those people, but you know, probably within hours thereafter, the core on their right, opposite PUK, would have surrendered, and who knows how far that ripple effect would have gone. But we just 
because we were formally forbidden from accepting the surrender, we could not take it. We could not commit to it. Wow. Yeah, I I read that portion of your book, and it was uh, disappointing, to say the least. And this must have been, what, March 2003? Uh, what time frame was that? Yeah, well, I'd have to refresh my memory dates, but, I mean, literally that day that the second meeting was conducted is the day that the U.S. military and and our guys first went into Mosul. Um, so, uh, and then I was in Mosul, I don't know, the next day, two days later. Uh, but our guy, our, our, my deputy and that his team that I had pushed forward went in at the same time that special forces went in, which is the same day of this second meeting that I just referred to. So, Sam, how much longer did you and your team stay on the ground after that, uh, you know, generally? How much longer did you stay in Iraq? So I was, uh, after the fall of Mosul, I I was out by the beginning of May. Okay. And the invasion kicked off in March. You had been there for some time. So then you make the point that you went home and, of course, Iraq over time slowly unraveled all the way up to the surge. Um, and of course, where we are today presently, that's why I wanted to open our discussion with talking about, again, the, the Kurds uh, interactions with the United States, not only, not only uh, during your time frame, but back to 1991. We could go back even further to the 1970s. Um, they still are our partners because they're the Syrian Democratic Forces, again, Syrian Kurds are holding a good deal of uh, maybe 10,000 uh, ISIS operators, and they're still trying to contain them in uh, northern Syria. So this fight isn't over, and uh, we're going to continue having to rely on the Kurds, I think, for some time in the future. Um, that really takes us to the lessons. I mean, we've been, I think we could talk for hours and hours, but I want people to pick up your book because I found it just a fascinating chronicle of, of um, one team's story, um, uh, not only at a tactical level, but how it linked to the strategy of, of being kind of the, uh, the northern tier of an invasion plan. And things didn't go exactly as planned, but you know, no, no plans do, right? Um, so you wrapped up your book talking about the lessons, the importance of unconventional warfare. You um, made reference to the Office of Strategic Services. What do you think some of those key lessons are? Well, it, despite the fact that, as you indicated, some things didn't go the way they, they, they could have, which is always true. You know, I think what, what we can see out of this is the same kind of thing we saw out of the first portion of the, the invasion of Afghanistan the first five months, which is we actually are, when we're allowed to be, we know how to conduct unconventional warfare, and we're actually very good at it. Um, and it's, it's not only effective and not only, relatively speaking, cheap, but often preferable in a whole slew of ways to the entire idea of, you know, let's send several hundred thousand American troops somewhere. And I, I think it's a lesson, you know, we seem to have forgotten it in Iraq, 
by the summer of 03, and we forgot it in Afghanistan for a long time. Hopefully, we've remembered it a little bit in some of the stuff we've done in Syria. I mean, this is the way we're going to keep getting drawn into these unconventional kind of conflicts or these conflicts in, you know, places all around the world, the third world conflict zones. And the answer cannot be that we're going to attempt to resolve all of these issues with mass numbers of conventional forces. And it also can't be that we're just simply going to walk away and say, well, there's nothing we can do. We've got to get back to this capacity of understanding that, look, relatively small numbers of men and women with the right capabilities and right authorities can go in and achieve a, a tremendous amount, often below the radar, and at a fraction of the cost that it's going to cost you to send the 4th Infantry Division there. Um, and and this is this is what we got to get back to. And uh, the good news is we know how to do it. Now we just got to let Washington get Washington bureaucracy out of the way and let us do it. Yes, Sam, those are all fair points. And quite candidly, I really do think the United States has learned some of those lessons uh, the lessons that you fought through circa 2003 are really due in our fight against ISIS, but we're constantly relearning lessons. Uh, but it was all about small teams with, with foreign partners, in this case, the Syrian Democratic Forces arrayed against ISIS and, of course, air power. But I really think that you were uh, an early model. You and your team were an early model, just as the teams that worked in Afghanistan with fifth special forces were for really hearkening back to the lessons of unconventional warfare that have been learned and practiced both by CIA as well as special forces. So I really appreciated your lessons. I appreciated your book. I want to ask you another key question before we wrap up. Is there anything else you would like to talk about that we didn't discuss? Well, I, I, I think that um, let me let me just just cl close with this or touch on this in response to that question. Uh, there are a lot of lessons learned here, and hopefully the book does does a good job of illustrating those. And there are policy implications and so forth. I wrote the book with one objective, and that was to make sure that the folks who did such an incredible job um, during the time in question get their due. You know, uh, the folks that I had the honor and privilege of leading, uh, these folks did amazing things. Often, as you've suggested, we're sort of inventing it as we go, making it up as we go. There is no template. And that's the, the really not only good news in terms of them, but I think it's the good news more broadly because there was nothing. <laughs> they're special to me because they were my team. But in a broader sense, there's nothing special. They are completely representative of the quality of the men and women we send downrange every day, which is our real strength. And uh, and and thank God we have them. Well, Sam, at the outset, you said that that was your objective at the very front of your book. I'm glad you ended with that because I think you absolutely accomplished your objective, highlighting the professionalism of your team. Uh, there's certainly ups and downs. We've all been through it, but it was very fascinating to watch your journey from headquarters to northern Iraq and back again, wrapping up with lessons. So I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts with our listeners. 
and for your long service with CIA. Uh, again, the book is The CIA War in Kurdistan. Check it out. Thank you very much. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.